you know, we like to try and find some hope at the end of every one of our episodes. Um, yeah, because when you don't have it in your life, you got to have it in an episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On today's episode, we're talking about language at Eurovision. First, Eurovision has gone back and forth on whether to require that countries present songs in their national languages. How should the contest balance fostering diversity with artistic freedom? Second, we talked to 2021 Ukrainian entrants Goe about how their use of the Ukrainian language is deeply connected to the purpose of their song. Finally, we sit down with New York Times bestselling author Soman Chainani and discuss the interaction between building the world of a song through lyrics and translating that world onto the stage and screen. We take a look behind the scenes At all the scandal songs and queens So come along as we traverse All the mysteries of the Euroverse Okay, we are back for another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. Hi, Magnus. Hi, or should I say bonjour? Oh my God, he is so on theme. Hola. Today's episode is the language episode. The language issue at Eurovision plays into all of these other topics that we've been talking about up until right. this point. On this episode, we're looking specifically at a language rule that yes. Eurovision has on and off incorporated into its rule book. Yeah, so the, the idea of this rule is whether a um, country has to send a song where the lyrics are in one of its official languages. The argument behind the rule is that you don't want every country just sending their song in English as a kind of default because then you totally lose this aspect of like getting to interact with all of these varied cultures. But that exists in tension with the idea of fairness. Most of the Eurovision audience speaks English. You know, you have these competing values of fairness to the artist versus making an interesting television program. And sometimes they can stand side by side and sometimes they can't stand in opposition to each other. And how do you how do you take a stand on how to sort of navigate that? We keep running into these kind of different ways that Eurovision uh, self-conceptualizes, right? And one version of this is the super commercial music broadcast. And then there's helping all of these European countries understand each other better. This idea of coming together, yeah. is it sameness, finding the things we have in common? Or is this coming together, celebrating individual national identities and cultures? Yes. How united are we by music? <laughs> Correct. To go through this, there's only one way to do it, and it's go back to the beginning. And uh, we love doing that on this <laughs> yes. podcast. It should be no surprise that the competition started without a language rule, especially that first year. It's can we even do this thing? That's yeah. why you see there's a huge difference between year one and year two. Number of songs submitted, number of jury members. You know, the yeah. the first one is not when you can get on that detail level on the on the rules. So yeah, it would say they basically were just seeing whether the cameras turned on. <laughs> Kind of. You're right. It's like an, it's an, it's an experiment. Yeah, 100%. And we're talking in this first broadcast about, what, seven countries? Seven. We really were talking about a small set of nations with a fairly limited number of languages total and a tremendous amount of language affinity between countries. That first year didn't even have the UK in it, right? right. Which meant uh, the big bad wolf of English uh, just was not even a question. Right. And you're also in a time where... I, I'm not saying that opera necessarily was like pop culture, but you're talking about an audience who's also like consuming yes. opera in Italian, opera yes. in French, you know, they're, they're, these How dare of, you suggest that I'm not doing that every <laughs> evening? <laughs> the idea that the biggest TV channel in primetime hours could uh, air an opera in Italian yeah. with no subtitles to an audience of non-Italians God. was completely normal. TV in the 50s sucked. <laughs> like, people must have been so bored. In the few years after the competition starts, some of these smaller countries are, are joining. That includes Sweden, it includes Norway. And now you're dealing with countries who have official languages that are very narrow. Yeah. There's no other country in the world than Sweden that has it as an official language. So in 1965, Ingvar Wixell, he repped Sweden with Absent Friend. 
And there was a controversy around that because the song was in English. Right. It's not like this song won. I think if anything, it's almost like the competition was like, you can do that? We recently saw the Barbie movie, which I have to say, Sweden showing up with a song in English feels very much to me like Barbie going, have you guys ever thought about death? No, but it is. And then suddenly everyone else stops and goes, what? And then Eurovision melts down. Right. The song didn't even place in the top half, yet there's all these conversations. Now everyone is so scared. Like, what's going to happen to the competition? It'll crumble. Everything's terrible. Sweden has ruined everything. So the EBU's response to all of this is that it instituted a rule that required every country to perform songs that were in one of their official languages. Well, then now you have a competition where there's only two countries who can actually perform in English. Yeah. You've basically given advantage. Two years later after that rule... We get the first win for the UK in 1967. And then the next year in 1968, the UK almost wins again. Franco, who is the dictator of Spain, bribed a bunch of national juries, allowing the Spanish contestant to win. So so that's 1968. We go to the next year, 1969. UK gets its second win. Then the next year, 1970, is the first win for Ireland. Basically, 67, 68, 69, 70, it kind of goes English, 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 English. Yes. And, and with some dictatorship in the, in the mix. Yeah, a, a, a soupçon of dictatorship. <laughs> oh. Um, that's some French for our French listeners, because this is going to be very hard for them as an episode. So 1973, the EBU gets rid of the language rule. And in 1974, Sweden wins with Abba's Waterloo. Right. A song famously in English. (laughs) Now, out of Sweden's seven wins, five of them were in English. To the extent that you look at Eurovision as like, I'm interested in this because of this element of cultural exchange, it really does acknowledge this underlying pressure that at least existed then. Waterloo, major hit for Sweden. It's a song in English that uses as its central metaphor a military battle between the British and the French. Um, At the same time, if you had the language rule, it would have been a lot harder for a country like Sweden to win as often as it did, and we would have been robbed of major stars and major songwriters. In 1975, the Netherlands wins. They're also singing in English. This is the year after ABBA. I think the broader general trend of the repeal of the language rule is that there was just like a lot more English. But with freedom came new kinds of creativity. So you have the Bendix singers in 1973 with a song that is sung in Spanish, Italian, Dutch, German, Irish, Serbo-Croatian, Hebrew, Finnish, Swedish, and Norwegian. I'm really curious to see, that must be close to a record for how many languages in one song. I think, I think it is the most, except for possibly one of Bulgaria's entries. Oh, I was um, even just thinking in the world in general, but I guess even in Eurovision people have yes, that. This kind of thing has been a thing that's been tried a few times, and it, it makes sense, right? Because it's like, are we talking about a kind of internationalism that involves flattening everything under the banner of English? Or are we talking about a a kind of globalization or internationalism that is rooted in national cultures that then are shared? For anyone who's seen the Eurovision movie, it's the moment when she sings the other song at the end of the movie in Icelandic, and it cuts to them in Iceland and they go, she's singing in Icelandic! (laughs) Right. (laughs) Also, because it's a mix of Icelandic and English can only exist in a non-language rule world. We see non-English speaking countries winning in English. People are fearing that we've lost this cultural aspect. So in 1977, the rule is back. And there is also a much more cynical explanation for why the language rule came back, right? Which is that the powerful countries, namely the UK, wanted to win more particularly a decade later when it became Eastern European countries joining Eurovision. I think it's just like the kind of situations where some sort of rule happens initially to create something better. And then the rule stays in place because the people who benefit from the rule get powerful. And then they really want to keep the rule. And this time, the language rule stays in place until 1998. So we have this 21-year period. Most of the winners during this time are in English, songs from the UK or Ireland, or songs in French. It's worth noting that all seven wins that Ireland has 
all happened under the rule. The first one, 1970, was in the first iteration of the rule. And then their next six wins, 1980, 1987, 1992, 1993, 1994, and 1996, all happened under the second iteration. It's even actually, I think, slightly worse than that because yes, 92, 93, 94, and 96 were all Ireland. 97 was the UK. The one year we are skipping is 95, which was Norway. Yes. Secret Garden, one with Nocturne. Technically a song in Norwegian, absolutely. It has 24 words in the whole song. I mean, out of all winning songs in Eurovision, it is the one with the fewest amount of words. Even like where the camera is in the broadcast, the violinist is the star of that song. Oh, absolutely. Although um, notably, Norway's official languages, Norwegian is one of them, but violin is the second one. <laughs> Correct. (laughs) Oh my God, that's funny. If our Irish listeners are sitting here angry at us, you know, there's probably one more year that we could add to this streak of 92, 93, 94, and 96. The the singer who was mostly in the shadows was Norwegian. Yes. But the violinist in the beaming light of the sun, Irish. (laughs) So congrats, congrats, Ireland. Uh, We just gave you another Eurovision victory. (laughs) It's worth noting that... uh, If we look back to our pilot episode, you know, we talked about this dry spell, 1976 to 1998. Those of you who have skipped the pilot episode, I will never never forgive you. Um, But we pointed out the fact that up until 1976, there were 20 Eurovision songs that charted in the U.S. But 1976 to 1998 was a complete dry spell. You went from a contest that could be churning out tons of English songs every year right? to a contest that really was only turning out maybe two a year. So now you'll see the theme of this episode, Sweden. <laughs> they removed the language rule in 98, yeah. 1999, Sweden wins. And then in 2000, they host with like this gigantic Eurovision. The uh, idea generally of that contest in Stockholm being the sort of kickoff for this new era of Eurovision, really, it is something that you see in like multiple ways. The language rule changes. Yeah. And then within a year or two, they've now also implemented the no politics rule. It was not just the apolitical rule. It was rules involving the orchestra, right? Suddenly, artists had much more of an ability to use tracks. It also means that when it comes to staging, it's very simple where you put the artist when they're performing with an orchestra in front of the orchestra. The cameraman can run through where the orchestra used to sit. So this idea of production value. We are now moving away from public broadcaster territory and we're moving into this is a big commercial show that is supposed to be kind of putting out pop hits. In 1999 to 2016... All the winners in those years are in English, with the exception of 2007. But once you free people from being bound to their national language, there are also like tons of other things they can do. Jamal is a perfect example of, of something that could only happen when the rule is gone, where she's very much able to feature Crimean language. She's able to share a historical moment in her family and her culture and, and her country. The core of Jamala's song was to get a message out, right. right? In the aftermath of Putin's invasion, she's telling the story of the last time Russia invaded Crimea. Right. And that goal of communication just would not have worked. So take Mahmoud, uh, represented um, Italy in 2019 with Soldi, a song primarily in Italian, uh, but not just that, there was also Arabic in it, in referencing his Egyptian father. Vesna, with My Sister's Crown in 2023, they included Ukrainian in their lyrics, not an official language of their country, in a show of solidarity. Another example, I think, of a country who has used the freedom around language is Belgium, right? Which has, I believe, three national languages, right? Dutch, French, German? They are the country that twice has sent songs in completely made-up languages, right? They were like, three languages is not enough. Yeah. We need more. If you have people within a country who speak multiple different languages and you elevate one of those over the other, 
there are going to be people who feel left out. I do think we don't want to entirely just be like, because Jamala and a couple of other artists did something interesting, therefore we're going to turn a blind eye to the fact that like, broadly speaking, the contest in the 2000s lost its ability to have winners not using English. The number of languages that it was showcasing really decreased over these years. And the French were not happy. Yes. So you had Sebastian Tellier, who had a song called Divine. It was in 2008, and it was the first time that France had brought an English language song to the contest. I mean, France was in the 1956 Eurovision. It took until 2008 for the, <laughs> that is how much they hate English. Yeah. Alain Joinde, he was the minister responsible for upholding the French language. That is the Frenchest thing I've ever heard. Well, he said when one has the honor of being selected to represent France, one sings in French. I, I mean... I, and I will just point out, he did not say it in English. <laughs> so that is a translation. <laughs> to steel man the argument in the aftermath of the Brexit vote, Eurovision, a European song competition, has the most English language songs it's ever had. It's kind of like Eurovision that year was the friend who you're like, he doesn't love you enough. I know you love English, but he's hurting you. So why don't you like find someone who loves you more? And maybe if you sing in English, he'll love you again. Well, that's the other way. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> so we've we've tightened language restrictions and then we've loosened them and then we've tightened them and then we've loosened them, yes. you know? So it's like, what now, you right. know? There's a way of getting nihilistic about this idea of cultural exchange or at least language exchange that Eurovision used to have. Magnus, I think you should make the argument for hope. So now in the post-pandemic era, the, the next two winning songs are not in English. Right. You know, you have Monaskin, who's now a huge international band. They win with a song in Italian. And Kalush Orchestra, that win in 2022, their song is in Ukrainian. You look at that 2021 year, yes, Monaskin won. And then number two and number three were both French language entries, right? You had John's Tears and then Barbara Pravi. If someone is bringing Frenchness to the world stage, yeah. that that number was like pee off on steroids, right? They, they, when they planned that song, they went, how should it sound? French. Yeah. What language? French. French. How should we stage this? French. Um, I think this was a song written by the Minister for the Defense of the French <laughs> Language. In 2023, we had this kind of perfect split screen in when it, okay. when it came down to the two of like, you know, are we in the Sweden era, which Lorraine represents because she's Swedish, but she's literally like a winner from the Sweden era, whose right. song Euphoria represents this huge international success you can have with right. an English language pop song coming out of Eurovision. Um, and then on the other side, you have Karia, who in every way, I think, represents a different kind of Eurovision. It, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And that's the world I want to live in. We have some awesome guests lined up today. First, we talk to Goe, who are actual Ukrainian folklore experts and whose use of language in their music is very intentional. And then you'll hear from novelist Soman Chinani, who will play a game with us about the process of adapting the story of a novel, or in this case, a Eurovision song, to the screen. First, we're going to hear a bit of Goe's 2021 Eurovision song, Shum, and then we'll get right to the interviews. We are here with Goe, who represented Ukraine in both 2020 and 2021, placing fifth in the contest in 2021 with their incredible song, Shum. Thank you to you both so much for being here. We're so excited to speak yes. to you guys. Uh, thanks for having us. Can you talk about how the idea came about of combining such a, a digital kind of music as something like EDM? with very traditional in instruments like the Sopilka and the uh, Talanka? I was thinking about combining electronic music with something else, and I was thinking about that something else, what would it be? And during my trip to India, I've heard a girl singing the 
Ukrainian traditional folk song in India. And for me, I considered that as a sign. So I started to look for a female singer who can sing in a folk voice. And that's how I met Kate. Many people trying to sing in folklore, but it's it's uh, like folklore and uh, some uh, folk instrument. We want to be um, interesting. We need to combine our old uh, experience and uh, our future. It's classical music, it's electronic music, it's uh, indie music, rock music a lot. Uh, and it helped me to combine everything. Folk song helps me to understand what our ancestor was uh, thinking, was feeling. It's helped me understand our ancestors' uh, values. And now we can combine it with techno music, with rock music. It can be uh, popular music uh, right now. You draw heavily on folklore in your lyrics. Can you talk about sort of your background in the subject? It was my granny. I born in a small city in Ukraine and uh, grannies around me all time seen in Ukrainian folk music. Before many years, I feel that I need to come back to this to find my voice and uh, to make uh, something different. Many times I try to be a rock star and uh, I can growling and uh, I seen in pop music, uh, but when I start to sing folklore, I feel much better. Reading along with a lot of the lyrics, this idea of spring coming, making it through dark times and triumphing, like obviously Shum has that at the center of it, but also uh, Vesnyanka. So at first you need to know that in Ukrainian culture, uh, there is a genre of song called uh, Vesnyanka, which means a spring song. Spring is a beginning of a new circle and a new life. For me, spring means a hope for a better future. Remember, I was just uh, trying to write some tunes and I come up with this like drum and bass part. And I thought like, okay, it would be a good thing to put some uh, folklore lyrics on it. And then in a few hours, I met Kate uh, when she said like, okay, so I was going here by bus and I was uh, like singing some folk songs in my mind. And this guy was listening to uh, drum and bass in his headphones. So I think we should do like a drum and bass song with folk vocals. And I'm like, um, okay, that's, I will, that's just what I was thinking just a couple minutes ago. To move to Eurovision, what was your relationship with the contest growing up? The first glimpse of Eurovision that I had was, I believe, in 2004, when Ruslana won Eurovision. I realized that it's a good... Uh, place to find some new interesting artists, some really outstanding songs. Yes, for me, it was Ruslana. It's very interesting because in that moment I was in hospital and uh, doctors uh, tell me that I will die. <laughs> I was in my bed and uh, I saw Ruslana uh, thinking, oh, it's cool. Uh, it will be great to be like Ruslana. <laughs> I mean, that is a movie right there. So, so then talking about your first uh, almost Eurovision experience in 2020. For both of you, can you talk a little bit about what that emotional experience was like, finding out that you were going to represent Ukraine and then finding out that the contest was was canceled? And I remember us standing on the stage and waiting for the announcement of who would win the national selection. And then I realized that it's us. We uh, came to our national selection without any like managers, PR specialists, or some other kind of a big team. So then we started preparing and we received text message on our phones. They said, okay, coronavirus, pandemic, Eurovision had been canceled. We're like, okay, what do we do now? 10 minutes, doesn't go by. And another text message. I think you're going to be Ukraine's representative for the next year's Eurovision. <laughs> like, okay, so we need to do another song. I remember them talking when they said, no, we can't do the same songs. But that is an intense 15 minutes. For me, it was a chance to make another song more deeper because all the way it was a great song, but it was a song about girl, about boy, about strange yeah. love. To me, it's a more global song. And uh, I was happy that we can make something another. But uh, <laughs> to tell the truth, first, uh, we did not send Shum. We released this song before voting and it became popular and jury asked us to include the song to list. Basically, we were thinking about Shum as a song for our live shows. We hope pandemic soon will be over. We will start uh, doing live shows and 
we need a good song for everybody to dance to. And then when our Ukrainian jury said, send us those songs, you, you, you've been preparing for your visions, but also send the shoe. The first version of Shum was very interesting story. We shoot in this video in our iPhone, but the weather and nature help us to do it. Because in this day was... Uh, there was uh, very foggy. It's like the folklore was on your side. It's just having the uh, Rusalachki on your side, right? <laughs> <laughs> I met uh, old women from villages around uh, Chernobyl and they show me Rusalachki. So Rusalachki is the spirits of a forest and uh, they help to good people, but they are danger for people which make bad things. The song is based on old ritual, which I saw when I was in Chernobyl area. And the song is about people who lost their homes and their place in the world. Well, there is this big debate among Eurovision fans as to whether to rely on juries or televoters to select songs. Shum was such a popular favorite, but there was a discrepancy between televote and jury vote. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about what the best process is for selecting a song. You need to know that we are not upset. <laughs> 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 we are happy with everything what happened in our lives after Eurovision. It's more interesting than be just a winner of Eurovision. I think that winning Eurovision put some kind of a label on you. We're just a band. We, we just play our music and we still play it really big festivals across Europe. And Eurovision got us the first real push. Uh, but Eurovision also has this thing as a one-song artist. It was not our goal to win Eurovision. Our goal was to, to mentor people who help us to do what we do. We had a lot of fans in different countries. We can sing in, in Ukrainian language and uh, people understand what we're trying to say. I don't need to change my values, my language. I just can be myself and thank you Eurovision for this. I think that can sometimes be the danger of having your goal to just win because you might lose yourself in the process. Yes, there's winners, but then there's also iconic performances. Fifth place is obviously amazing, but your performance goes down as like an iconic Eurovision performance. Particularly in the context we're in right now, because Putin's whole thing is to kind of erase Ukrainian history and erase Ukrainian culture. How do you navigate the connection between telling your personal story and how that personal story can sort of like reflect a larger project. Since the start of the Soviet Union, people were executed just for singing Ukrainian songs. It's very important to us that we can speak in Ukrainian, that we can sing in Ukrainian, that we can show our Ukrainian music and culture to the world because it's our national identity, our culture. When we have shows in UK, in Netherlands, in Scandinavia, and we sing in Ukrainian language, and basically people don't understand what we're singing about. But they understand our emotions. It really ties right into this last year's competition, where the war kind of had to be quite present with the UK hosting on behalf of Ukraine. You were back on stage at Eurovision. Can you talk about sort of what was that experience like? I felt myself much better uh, than in 2021 when we go to stage. It was uh, just we're big Eurovision stars <laughs> from Ukraine. <laughs> it's a perfect role. You know, it doesn't get better than that. I think like uh, every piece of uh, this year's Eurovision just was a reminder why uh, it's uh, going on in the uh, UK, not in Ukraine. There was uh, a big balloon-like uh, statue of a nightingale. And basically our song for Eurovision 2020 was called Nightingale, Solovey. Eurovision has often tried to stay away from politics. That's in their rules that they can't be a political song. But last year, it, it really seemed like it was moving in a new direction. You know, the war was acknowledged on stage in the interval acts, and bands and artists were free to speak out. At the same time, there were reports that the EBU refused to let Zelensky speak at the contest. How do you think Eurovision can best use its platform right now in this current time? It's not uh, about politics. It's about our lives. When people say that you don't need to say something political things in the stage, uh, for us, war, it's not political. Because we, we lost our friends. This war is not a statistic. It's not political for us. I think we have to remember that Eurovision contest itself 
was established after World War II as a message of unity and peace across Europe. That's what we're talking right now, because like since the establishment of Eurovision, a lot of new generations had been born, and a lot of those people, they thought and they still think that simple things like freedom, for example, is something that you just take for granted. Reality shows us that it can be taken away just, just like this. In Ukraine, right now, we're not only fighting for our freedom or for our land or for our culture. I think we're also fighting for the right of democracy to exist. A lot of countries in Europe, they understand that if Ukraine falls, they are next. Eurovision fans know Shum very well, but you guys have a lot of other songs. So we just wanted to, to talk about a few of them, particularly because they are drawing on folklore and people coming to it without that context. Uh, I think it could be very, very helpful. Can you talk about Kalina a little bit? So at first, Kalina is a symbol of Ukraine, but now it means our fights as well. Kalina is a winter berry tree which always strong. Even in a cold winter, strong like Ukrainians. <laughs> we have our uh, own culture. We have our uh, different values and we will fight for it because we don't want to be a part of Russia. Speaking from our perspective, both people who don't speak Ukrainian, uh, something that we've always loved about Eurovision is you'll hear a song and, and we love to hear it in, in the original language. And then we look up the meaning and then you see how much deeper it goes. We had a lot of messages from our fans that after they have had heard our songs, they started to learn Ukrainian language. Wow. Basically, our lyrics is not something you can handle with just Google Translate or something, because you really need to do some research to understand what the lyrics are about. Uh, and people actually do that. They really discover some new things about our culture, maybe about themselves also. Moving to Dumala, um, what an incredible lyric. In, in telling the story, you really forefronted the idea that the rich man would take this girl away from her home, away from her roots, and the man she actually loves stayed and fought. Can you talk about the inspiration for drawing on that fairy tale and what you wanted to bring out in, in the adaptation? So the inspiration comes from real life. And uh, that is all okay. what you yes. need to know. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Kate, Kate, we need more than that. Give us, give us, the, give us the story. Give us... It's like how to say a lot and also nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank right. you so uh, much. Taras, this was amazing. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Our guest today is the perfect person to help us think through Eurovision's successful and less successful attempts to tell visually engaging, fantastical stories using song. Our guest is author and filmmaker Soman Chainani. Soman's blockbuster series, The School for Good and Evil, has sold more than three and a half million copies, been translated into 32 languages across six continents, and has been adapted into a major motion picture from Netflix that debuted at number one in over 80 countries. We're going to rely on Soma's expertise in what makes a good fairy tale world. And we're going to do this through a game we like to call Eurovision Tops and Bottoms, Fairy Tale Edition. Welcome, Soma. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a blast. Uh, the quick disclaimer is, and I can't emphasize this enough, we at Mysteries of the Universe uh, would never bottom shame. So whether it comes to songs or sexual positions, one can be great and find themselves in a place where their skills and talents are not suited to the situation. Good right. disclaimer. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you my one little anecdote. The Eurovision song Spaceman ended up at the the conclusion of the School for Good Evil movie as the final song. Much to my dismay, because <laughs> it's the only time during the whole movie process where I really raised a ruckus. I had no idea it was Eurovision song. If I yeah. had known, I think I really would have stood on the top of the Empire State Building and said, we cannot have a Eurovision song. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of amazing because I really agree with you about that song. I find the lyrics like very difficult to listen to, but people love that song. I mean, his voice is great. He has a great voice. He's what does girl. it have to do with two girls in a fairy tale universe discovering the empowerment of female friendship? Like, there's no men at the end yeah. of this movie. That and was probably the studio was like, we need a man somewhere. 
No. This, this was the problem. I think, I think <laughs> we, was, we adapted a gay man's novel. We knew it was going to feature women. I think it was is, a case of someone liking that song a little too much. Like you said, yeah. an entire country fell in love with it. Whereas I'm the guy screaming, the emperor has no clothes. What is <laughs> yeah. this song? Usually, I feel like the one thing that I have to have as a novelist is taste. You know? <laughs> so I trust my taste. You know? I actually think that's such a great way to make creative arguments. Just be like, listen, I'm a novelist. I have taste. I'm watching what you're doing. It's not very good. Right. <laughs> okay. So first up is Foulen by uh, Alvan and Ahez, uh, who represented France in 2022. Uh, so first I'm going to read a bit of the lyrics so you can get a sense of the theme and metaphor. The night sprouts in the obscurity of the woods. The stars appear in the restless rustling. A feminine shadow twirls in the light of a torch. I dance, ignoring the wild animals. I steal the fire from their lustful eyes and turn it into a song to be sung in unison. She dances with the devil. So what? This is great. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, I think it's actually high level stuff. I just think they took such a lovely metaphor and such deep thoughts and turned it into such chaos. There's this sort of Voldemort-esque Slytherin green that makes you think you're watching a green screen. And anything yeah. digital, you don't want to use green because you're just your brain is trained to see green as a placeholder for the effects you will eventually right. see. That makes sense. So yes. all That's I'm seeing is the the avatar. The shooting, but no, <laughs> <Yes>. no water. <laughs> and then you have the girl dancing on the floor, which could be nice on its own, but then you have the man completely kind of overshadowing her by fist bumping, and it, he's in a I bro know. party. He's well, basically Tiesto on... Uh, yeah, on a pizza. incredible. I mean, honestly, like, I'm sensing a theme here. Beautiful moments that could be for women just constantly ruined by dudes. <laughs> well, yes. also we'll say there's something about that staging that is a little bit like if um, Disney Plus wanted to do like a Burning Man seance. Oh, You know yes, what I mean? It's 100%. like, I don't buy the that he wears those outfits ever. No. I don't buy that that's a dance that he's ever done before. No. I had the exact same reaction kind of in reverse that you had, Soman, where I saw the performance first and actually until prepping for this episode, I never looked at the English translation of the lyric. Yeah. And then I read this lyric and I was like... The, 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 the fantasy is sort of built into it and to come up with that is sort of depressing. Also, yeah. he has way too much eyeshadow. And I feel like when a man wears that much eyeshadow, you just can't trust him. Yeah, that's, I think, kind of a residual 90s kid feeling mm. because it was the emo boys. Yes, but it's just too much. And the three women are quite angry when they're singing together, so they seem like witches out of Macbeth. So you add them all together. <laughs> it does have a very... Wrong. It should be. It should have felt like one of those Cirque du Soleil shows where everything yes. is kind of like fitting together to create this sort of electronic Enya vibe. Do you know what I mean? It's like a generic idea of like, literally someone just phoned up a random choreographer and said like, make it seancey. Make yeah. it yes. kind of like, make it a little bit sort of like... I love you slipping into that voice because it's like... It really paints a picture of who had to make the call to the choreographer. What we is the official top call? Bottoms Definite call. bottom. I mean, it has no opportunity to be versatile. I don't think we've ever had such a confident answer on this podcast, yes. and it is 100% right. Uh, next, we have Hard Rock Hallelujah by Lordy, who represented Finland in 2006. First, the lyric. The walls come down like thunder. The rock's about to roll. It's the Arocalypse. Now bear your soul. The problem is it's a lot of nice sounding words strung together that mean zero. <laughs> it's just a soup of words that doesn't even go down well because you're like, yeah. what, what am I eating? I thought it was going to take a turn there towards nope. something kind of stupid and fun and showgirls-esque. And then all of a sudden, it went back to trying to be profound. And I was like, yeah. oh, no. It's hard to be profound after you've said Arocalypse. Arocalypse. Uh, you did just like explain my love of Eurovision mm. um, by saying that you were searching for something showgirls-esque. Which, like, literally, I think is the thing that I keep finding at Eurovision. Yes. It's something that rises to that level that's, of that's, camp. Uh, that's the joy. I remember I was going to go see Bad Cinderella, and someone goes, you can't go because it's the worst thing in the world. I said, no, you don't understand. I'd love that. I'd love camp. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. And so I went. And, and was it? I texted him four minutes into the show, and I said, 
why didn't you warn me? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the problem, right? This is the problem with heterosexuals taking over camp. <laughs> oh, you're so right. They, they can't it's do true. it right. Do it. Yeah. Okay, let's watch this I feel like if you're all going to dress up in costumes like that, then something has to happen. There needs to be a falling chandelier. There needs to be some sense of danger. Yeah. But if you're going to put hours and hours into makeup and costume, and then you just stand there with a plastic battle axe. Yeah, it's one of those things that's difficult, too, because it's like, as a gay person who gets turned off every time there are electric guitars in a thing, yeah. it's I, just like, I, this has no chance of me liking it, which is why it's good to turn to a novelist with taste. Um, because <laughs> it's an interesting idea. The idea of a hard rock hallelujah, I think it can be pulled off. Remember when Lady Gaga, when she performed paparazzi, came in the bloody dress and she comes, yeah. it was a very, you know, histrionic performance, but there was something happening where you can engage with the drama of it. But I think this was just a little bit like, it's a little bit like Muppets demanding to be taken seriously. And <laughs> I, I, there was no seriousness happening. So anyway, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up in the top, but I would definitely have put it in the bottom. It won. It won like it won? It yeah, won the whole competition. I love the idea of Hard Rock Hallelujah, and I yeah. just don't like the song. It does reinforce like one of the fundamental like principles of lyric writing that was taught to me like very early on, which is that when it comes down to it, words don't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, obviously the costumes were striking and they were executed very well. And I think that was, especially at the time, pretty new to Eurovision. I mean, they had rock, yeah. but not to that level. The Eurovision finale shows you 26 songs you never heard before yeah. in a row. And then you try to stand out in that. You know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that most, makes sense. the most kind of extreme, that the most different. So our next song is Sarah Alto, who represented Finland 12 years later after Lordi. And here's some of the lyrics. Felt so numb, but now I'm ready to feel it. So tonight I'm making friends with all the creatures that are hiding under my bed. I ain't going to hold on to these monsters anymore. Oh, it's a, it's a Katy Perry song. I know. It's like such a great <laughs> pop diva number. It's like mm, <laughs> Katy Perry watched Monsters, Inc. and did the impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When somebody is that committed to whatever they're doing, it actually can hold my attention. Yeah. I'm confused because I think at first she's in the cage doing this kind of somber, kind of intense song. And then she has these kind of like animalistic dancers. And I think we're going to see kind of like this Shakira She-Wolf-esque performance. But then she's in like... 80s aerobic. It's very glitzy. It's very, yeah. very different. I would keep watching it because it's so unpredictable and you don't know what she's doing. But I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> you know, it has that showgirls quality. Of yes, like, it what, does have the, yes. What is this? What am I watching? I also um, will say with this one, it's like the opposite of my problem with the Hard Rock Hallelujah, yeah. where the genre of that song that's where I live. Yes, yes, yeah. That's, and so my, that's my show. I could right 100%. There. It's a familiar enough zone where. It's enjoyable, and I could just listen to it. She's a happy Bjork. She is a happy Bjork. I, that, oh. That's going on her new poster. <laughs> she's a Bjork with uh, no subconscious. I think it probably ended up in the bottom. I can't see that many people voting for this one. Spot on. I have to say, these rankings, a lot of them very much confused me. So yeah. I am very impressed with how much you're nailing it. But I think this is a song that has, like become a grower, I guess, on people. Like, I think it's a song that, like, a lot of Eurovision fans, like, keep referring back to. Yeah. So it's, and I think it's it was, a bottom and a grower. Or a growing bottom. Not to be mean to her, but I think if somebody else sang it, like Katy Perry, it would have actually worked. Because the song yeah. itself is quite good. I think going into Eurovision, people really liked the song a lot. Yeah. Um, and it was a big disappointment. So I think it is one of those things where it's like, the performance may have killed a, a, a pretty oh, good song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. 
She's a lesbian. She yeah. is? She's a yeah. lesbian. So now you feel a little homophobic, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> a straight woman like Katy Perry, I would have liked to know. Impartial <laughs> observer. Okay. okay so let's next see up, uh, we're going to my home country of Norway um, with Tix's Fallen Angel. This was Norway's entry in 2021. Here's a selection of the lyric. And I'm still not sure what you ever saw in me. No, I'm a fallen angel. And no matter where my heart is, there's no way I'll reach you up to heaven. Does it move me? Not quite, but but it's good enough for whatever they are trying to do. Okay, let's Improve see, it. let's see. God, it's so stupid, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know that they could fly out the entire uh, ensemble of Wicked. It's uh, so literal. <laughs> it's so stupid, but I love it. The lyrics themselves, solid is there. And then, then <laughs> when you watch the choreography, you're like, they aspire to so much. But then when you have the angels like doing this little like um, Bozzy the Bear dance, yeah. like you can't quite like... Oh God! I would I would assume this one ended up in the bottom because too many people would have been like, "This is bad." Or, or am I wrong? <laughs> it was d very much in the bottom, and you know, Norway, a kind of Eurovision powerhouse. I do believe it was one of the worst performances for Norway in recent memory. Uh, it might be. Um, uh, also, an interesting fact about the song is it was in Norwegian in the semifinals in Norway, and the lyrics were better in Norwegian. Was, was the staging in Norwegian too? <laughs> Because it was also like it was a, it was a lot about his mental health struggles, and then when they rewrote uh, it, it just became uh, about this girl, you know. But the, then they need that. the devils to to give us a little bit of struggle. Next, we have Mons Zelmerlöv's 2015 song "Heroes," representing Sweden, and the lyrics are, "What if I'm the only hero left?" He said, "Go dry your eyes and live your life like there's no tomorrow, and tell the others to go sing it like a hummingbird." The greatest anthem ever heard. We are the heroes of our time, but we're dancing with the demons of our mind. That one's great. Yeah. I think it's really good. There's something about it that sort of gets you at a deeper emotional level. Something should happen here. And if it doesn't, it's a, it's a wasted oh opportunity. Someone's just been waiting for something to happen. That's actually yeah. what our listeners probably think. He said, go dry your eyes and live your life like there is no tomorrow, son. And tell the others to go sing it like a hummingbird, the greatest anthem ever heard. We are the heroes of our time. Heroes. Ooh. But we're dancing with the demons in our minds. Heroes. Ooh. Okay, can I should I start with the, the negative things first? Yes. Negatives yeah. are <laughs> I don't like the song. And I find him deeply unlikable. <laughs> incredible. The positives are the staging's incredible. It's funny, yeah. I was thinking of uh, Taylor at uh, the VMAs being like, it's giving movie, it's giving cinematography. And that's yes. exactly what I felt watching it, where I was just like, it's so clever and smart and such a cool way to use digital and so well thought out and unified that it just is a shame it's in service of such a crappy melody. I would have put it at the bottom of the top half. Nice. Well, that, it, 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 it was half of that in the top. Right. Yeah. It, it won the competition. Oh, it won. And yes, in 2015. That's why. Eight uh, years ago, if I had seen that, I would have been like, and now yeah. you're, I think people were just a little more jaded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the AI is making cartoons of our face and all that. Like, all right, let's do the last one. We could not do our fairy tale episode without the Eurovision song Fairy Tale. Alexander Rebach, who represented Norway uh, with this song in 2012. Let me give you the lyric real quick, Soman. Um, I'm in love with a fairy tale, even though it hurts, because I don't care if I lose my mind, I'm already cursed. Every day we start fighting, every night we fall in love. It has sort of emotional heights to it and, yeah. and aspires to something. So there's opportunity. Maybe this is the one where something happens. <laughs> Let's see. I'm in love.
he's singing about she she's a fairy tale she 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 all i'm looking at are the three hot dancers in the background doing tumblers. you're like that's the fairy tale i'm that's interested the, in. that's it because the lead singer's useless the, <laughs> the the song is useless but you've got these three amazing kind of acrobatic male dancers in the back who are doing all the work for him so the dissonance between him shrieking about her being a fairy tale and the fact that these three male dancers are saving it that's the fairy tale the fairy tale Which, is that the only reason this is watchable is he's got those three men behind him doing all the work i i love that and i love that as a waiter to to sort of come full circle because we finally found a moment where the female presence is actually ruining the act the female presence if is they ruining just the act. let the men dance um, so, so, Soman, what do you think the, the call is on this one? Oh, this one's tough because I would put it in the bottom, but I can see how people of, of people like a fiddle, the, I was going to say lesser <laughs> taste. <laughs> <laughs> the country of Norway is very upset at you right now. Might <laughs> put this in the top. For me personally, I'd put it in the bottom. It's another uh, winner of the competition. Yeah. Oh, really? At yeah. the time, one of the most successful wins in the competition's history. Anything with fiddles, I think, tends to dupe an audience. There's a certain element of Eurovision that it ha- there's a deep love for this sort of cultural exchange. What he's playing on the fiddle leans right into both kind of Norwegian folk music, but also kind of Eastern European folk music. Yeah, He's Belarus and Norwegian. And the dance that the dancers are doing, that's traditional folk dance in Norway, yeah. with kicking the hat off. Even the fact that he's wearing the vest, which is like exactly and what those... We, we I, ignorant I, Americans are Well, like. no, I, I have to say that the one thing I did pick up on is I think it's a very cute vest. Yeah. And we'll say too, like he is a classically trained, like world level classical violinist. The, the instrumentation is great and everything. But I'm looking purely at the staging and thinking we could do without him. I am curious in, uh, about seeing the spinoff uh, featuring the three dancers. Oh, no, listen, there. there were three dancers weren't originally in it. Really? It was the head of Norwegian MGP, no surprise, a gay guy. They were like a dancer troupe. Yeah. And he was like, this pairs perfectly with this. I love it. He was like, I had them down at my party in Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> They're going to do great. Um, so, man, thank, thank you so, so much for joining us. This was us. so much fun. This was such a great oh my time. God. I could do this all day. Well, Magnus, I think that was another great episode. Yeah, yeah, helt enig. Oh, oops, I said that in Norwegian. I mean, <laughs> let's hope people agree. Yes, and if you don't, you know, feel free to message us. But if it's going to get insulting, we'd prefer you use a language we don't understand. <laughs> anyway, next week, we're talking about juries and voting. We talked to John's Tears, whose 2021 Eurovision smash, Tout le univers, caused a major split between the juries and televoters. Then you'll hear from Michael Ju Rosen, who starred in Netflix shows like Pretty Smart and Glamorous, but who also trained as a professional ballet dancer, dancing with the New York City Ballet. He helps us draw distinctions between the kind of art that you get when the experts are in charge versus the ones you get when the people get to rule. We really can't wait for you to hear the episode. And then we'll see you next week. But until then, happy Eurovision. Eurovision.